Good evening. Tonight, uh, I'd like for us to uh, look at this topic. The monitor is out, but maybe is it just out? You know, it's just out. Okay. Um, well, I can. I, I trust that it'll just move. Okay. Ah, it just came on. There we go. Thank you. Um, you know, back a, a few years ago, I, I'll tell you, I, I like to joke. I like to have a little bit of fun. I, I've always been that way. It's kind of in my nature. And I guess I got that from my mom. My mom was, is, uh, just a little bit ornery. Uh, John, Johnny Ramsey, uh, used to stay at our house quite a bit. And, uh, he would, uh, make these outrageous demands of mom and, and kind of, you know, they just had this little thing going back and forth. And so, um, one day Johnny asked her to, uh, do something with his, uh, some of his clothing while he was, uh, staying with us. And she took his pajama bottoms and stitched up the legs halfway across so that when he went to put his leg in, he could, he was just stuck. And, uh, he came down, he, I guess he fell across the bed, you know, because he was, uh, tripped and he, he said that was the closest he ever came in all of his years of preaching to getting a black eye uh, from, you know, going on uh, mission trips and, and gospel meetings. But there was a, a few years ago, a young man preacher moved to the area that we were preaching in, uh, in Kentucky. And there was a big lectureship there at Lehman Avenue. And uh, several hundred men were there, and it was his first time to be in the area, and, and he wanted to make a good impression and meet people. And I came up to him, and I patted him on the back and said, well, I'm glad you're in the area. We've been friends all of our lives. And I put a sign on his back at that moment that said, kick me. And so he was walking around the lectureship with this sign on his back. One of his elders finally came to him and said, you might want to remove this, but Sometimes we can we can look rather foolish uh, through somebody else's fault or maybe our own fault. The Bible gives us some examples of men who were foolish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, there are good examples and there are bad examples of people that God said, hey, you might want to take note. And, and well, there's a host of people that we look at in the Bible and we say, Ah, I need to pattern my life after them. I need to learn from him to do the same things. And there are also people in the Bible that when you look at their life, they're explicitly given examples to us. Don't do this or you'll wind up like them. Probably as parents, you have used people as object lessons and said to your children, do you see that? That's what we're trying to tell you. That's what we're trying to warn you about. Um, and, and those real life examples maybe drive some points home more, um, you know, more memorably than just the words that you could speak. But here's what I want us to do tonight. I want to look at three lives of some men and then the lesson will be yours. But I want to look at some th- three men that had a foolish legacy who left a foolish legacy to us today. And there's a passage in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 35 that says, The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. And I think that we've probably all lived long enough to see that's the case. But in particular, we will see that tonight. Shame is the legacy of fools. 
So let's look at some people that were foolish. And the first man that I want to look at tonight is a man by the name of Ahithophel. Um, that may, name may not sound familiar. We talked about him not too long ago in a side point in a sermon. But in your Bibles, if you have your Bible, open it to 2 Samuel. Uh, well, chapters 15 through 17, actually, the whole, uh, the, the whole section is uh, kind of a setup to our introduction to Ahithophel. At this time, David was king in Israel. And it was at this time that Absalom began to rebel against his dad. And he wanted to be the new king. And so he would place himself at the gate of the city. And as people would come in, he would win their hearts. He would say, hey, what, what, what's your problem? What, what, are you, what are you in town for today? And they'll say, well, I have this issue with my neighbor. And this is going on in my life. And, and then David or Absalom would say, oh, wow, you're kidding me. Well, if I were king, I tell you what, I, I'd see it your way. And he won over people by that kind of smooth talk, and he was a handsome man. And, and before long, the people had gotten such a following behind Absalom that David has to leave town. Uh, he leaves Jerusalem with his entourage, and, and as they leave, you remember their shimei throwing rocks at him, calling him all kind of names. But, but during this time, as they leave, Ahithophel, who was a, a great advisor, his advice was said to be like as if God spoke to him. He, he was a wise man and gave great advice to David when David was king. But now David has left town and he didn't leave with him. He said, go your way, David. I'm here with Absalom now. I've shifted my loyalties. There's speculation as to why he would do that. How does a man stand with another man and give him this great advice and be this close counselor, and then when the least bit of trouble arises, he just bails? Um, maybe, possibly, when you look at the lineage of Ahithophel, he had a son by the name of Eliam, who had a daughter by the name of Bathsheba. David had murdered... Ahithophel's grandson, uh, or grandson-in-law, if you want to say it that way. There's close ties here. He had committed violence and, and abused uh, Bathsheba, who was the daughter of Eliam, who was the son of Ahithophel. And maybe that was the turning point in their relationship. After these things happened, that Ahithophel said, Boy, I, I, this man is corrupt. Look at what he's done to my family. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not it. But I do know that he switched sides. And so as David leaves the town, here's Ahithophel. He comes to Absalom and says, listen, I suggest that we go after him right now. Let's run him down and let's kill the whole lot and be through with him. And Absalom weighed that, and he thought, you know, hmm, should we do that? And another advisor said, no, 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 I don't think we should do that, because if we do that right now, we don't have everybody on our side. We need to wait until we get support from Dan to Beersheba, you know, from the northern 
part of Israel to the southernmost part of Israel. We need everybody on our side, and then let's go after them when we have everybody's support. If we go out and kill them now, they're going to be people accusing us of murder and, and all this, you know, stuff. It, it's bad PR. Let them go, and when we have greater support, then we'll go get them. Well, Absalom thought about it, and he said, you know what? I like that advice. And Ahithophel didn't take it so well. He probably, maybe wasn't used to having his advice rejected. But look at what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 22, or excuse me, verse 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order, and he hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Wow. Talk about overreaction. Talk about a legacy of self-spite. This guy doesn't get his way, and what's he do? He goes out and kills himself because he didn't get his way. Foolish, foolish legacy. But, question. Have you ever known anybody today that makes the same kind of mistakes? Have you ever known anybody in the church that would hurt themselves because they don't get their way? Do people ever overreact when they don't get their way? I think we can all say the answer is yes to that. Have you ever known anyone in, in, in the Lord's church? They come, they've got a great idea. And they come and they present this idea, and it's the best thing. that They can't see why anybody would say no, but it's like delayed. Maybe it costs money. Maybe it's just not the right time. Maybe there are other investments that we've got going on right now, and we'll have to put that on the back burner. But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fly immediately. And I've seen guys just up and leave, walk away. Man, you're not going to do what I suggested? I'm not going to get my way? And then they're of no use to anybody because they pout, they quit, they leave. They turn their back on God. They stop serving. I remember, and I think I've told you this example before, but I remember a number of years ago, back when um, everybody had those Velcro wallets, you know, and, and we had the Lord's Supper, and then immediately following the Lord's Supper, we had um, the contribution. Well, what that meant was that as soon as we passed uh, the fruit of the vine, from the start, you started hearing, you know, all this ripping going on before, you know, half the congregation hasn't taken the Lord's Supper yet. But, but, and they're distracted by all this ripping of Velcro. And so, um, we decided, the elders decided, let's do this and then we'll have a song and then we'll take up the collection. And that way we won't disrupt people and disturb people as they're trying to concentrate on the Lord's Supper. And seemed like a good idea. Except one man came and said, you know what, I don't like this. Because when I serve, 
you know, that we, we pass it and we walk right back up front and we stand right at the table and we pass it again and we walk right back up and stand at the table and then we get those collection plates and we walk right back and we're done. Now, we've got to walk up, stand, and then go pass it out and then walk up, pass it out, and then go sit down before we stand. I'm not doing that sitting down stuff. If you want, if this is the way we're going to do it, I will never serve here again. That's what he said. I will never serve again so long as we have that song between the... Because that meant he had to sit down before he stood up. You're going to deny God your service. You're going to deny an opportunity to participate in public worship because you don't get your way over something like that? It, it, it happens. Here's a man in the Bible who was a trusted advisor, a good thinker, a man whose advice was like the advice of God, and his advice isn't taken, and he's so wrapped up in himself that he commits suicide. Well, we don't want to be that guy. That is foolish. When I look at his life and I hear this story, read this story, I think that man was, was foolish. What a thing to commit suicide over. But I'm afraid that people may do the very same thing today and make decisions very similar to that. Have you ever known anybody to get upset with something at church, with somebody at church, with a decision, with an elder, with a person that sits in the pew next to them, with something that somebody said as they were passing down the hallway or leaving the building, things that weren't even necessarily intended to be hurtful but just misconstrued? And because of those things, they leave? They quit, never to serve God again. That's self-spite. And that's a legacy that you don't want to leave. Do you want to leave people a legacy? Do you want your life to be a legacy when they think of you? They think of a man who spited himself to make a point. We don't want that. It happens. Let's use Ahithophel to learn from his foolishness that I don't want to leave a legacy of self-spite. Here's another person, and this is from 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you have your Bible, you might want to flip over there. But from 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's a, a man by the name of Nabal, and he left us a legacy of disrespect. You see, David was... You know, this, this mighty man, he's risen up. God has raised him up. He's been chased by Saul all over the countryside, and, and God has protected him. And, and, and Nabal was a rich man. He had thousands of flocks. And, and David and his band of men were hungry. And so he sent some of his servants to go to Nabal, and he said, this guy is loaded he is rich. And he said, here, he has this and this and this. And so go to him and tell him that whatever he finds it in his heart to give us, hey, we'd really appreciate it. Because we're out being chased around and we're trying to do what's right. And, and you're rich and wealthy and you've got all this excess. Um, just do, do what you think is right. And when those men come and tell Nabal that, you know what he says? Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? 
I don't know this guy. And, and you know, I'm not going to go throw I've worked hard for all this stuff, and I'm not going to be throwing my money here and there to help people, every little you know, guy that rises up. I, I'm not throwing my money to every work like that. You tell him no. And so the Bible says they just turned on their heels and they went back to David and said, hey, he doesn't respect you. He thinks you're just some upstart and, and he's not going to give you anything. We told him exactly what you told us to say, but he's not interested in helping at all. And David said, guys, take up your swords. We're going and we're going to go take, you know, what, what is my, this is disrespect. And David was going for him. But somebody told Nabal's wife, Abigail, what had happened. And so she, before David could get to her husband, she ran ahead and she took all kind of things to give to David as gifts. And she apologized for her husband. She said he's foolish, full of folly, and, and to please forgive. And based on Abigail's uh, petition, he let Nabal live. What a foolish man. In fact, one of the things that the text tells us is that while David was with Nabal and all these flocks and herds that he had, he never took anything. He could have, but he didn't. And not only did he not take things from him in this time of war, he protected Nabal. He stood as a wall between him and the enemies. And so the, the shepherds that took care of Nabal's flocks, they said, oh, He's been nothing but good to us. He's helped us. And still it didn't have any David or Nabal's just like, who's David? I'm not showing him any respect. I'm, I'm above him. And because of that, uh, well, Nabal, when he learns about everything, he has something that looks like maybe a stroke when he had heard what he had done and what almost befell him, and then he died. But a legacy of disrespect. And so, you know, again, I ask the question, are there people today in the church who fail to honor and respect those who are worthy of respect? One of the things that my dad said many years ago when I first started preaching and decided to preach um, he said, you make sure that you respect your elders. Uh, you make sure that you show them respect and that you're on their side and you make them your friends. And that has always stuck with me. And it does make a difference. I see guys that move every 18 months and they just have this pattern of that. And I think part of that problem I know there are a variety of reasons for those things can happen, but I also know one of the reasons it can happen is because somebody doesn't have the kind of respect that they should have for the, the authority that is in place. As a church, have you seen churches that thrived as opposed to churches that were constantly in fusses? You know what often is the difference, the respect for the leadership? those who respect the leadership and the right to make decisions and to follow their mature decisions, um, that, that makes all the difference in the world. 
than when you have a church that uh, every decision is questioned and challenged and, and uh, disagreed with and, and debated. The Bible tells us that we need to respect our leaders. We owe our leaders esteem. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 12 through 13 that we're to esteem them highly for their work's sake. That needs to be a part of who we are. And if we're not doing that, we're leaving a legacy like Nabal. Here's a man anointed by God to be king of Israel, and this guy says, well, who's he? I don't have any respect for this guy. We don't want to leave that kind of uh, legacy. Elders don't always make the right decisions. They don't always lead in the best of options but they're men who have been ordained by God. And we need to respect that. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 13 and verse 17 that we're to obey those who rule over us and submit to them. And both of those things are hard to do. The whole obedience thing, the whole submission thing, you know, putting down my will for another's will, you know, that's hard, but that's what he calls us to do. And First Timothy 5 and verse 19 says, part of that respect means that we protect them. Receive not an accusation against an elder except it be by one or two witnesses. Um, not only should we not say things about them and, and rumor against them, but we shouldn't receive any of that kind of talk. That's what the Bible says. And so... Let's make sure that we're not doing the same thing that Nabal did. I look at Ahithophel and I say, wow, that's easy to see. That, he just hurt himself. Because he doesn't get his way, he goes out and kills himself. Well, who's he hurt? He's hurt himself. I don't want to be like that. And I don't want to be like Nabal, who when you look and read his life, you say, wow, how foolish is that? How, how, how full of folly is that? Because he owed David. David did things for him. He was God's anointed, and he wouldn't show him respect. That can happen to us, too, if we're not careful. I don't want to leave that kind of legacy. I don't want my children to remember me as a guy who was always complaining about the church leaders, who was always complaining about the direction of the church, about every decision that's made. We need to leave a legacy of respect. I want my children to remember me for being one who supported and got behind and worked and, and without complaints. That's what I want them to remember. And then here's the third and final person that I want to look at tonight. And his name is Elamus. If you have your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 13. Because there we read of this man by the name of Elamus. And Elamus left us a legacy of obstruction. The Apostle Paul is trying in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 6, he's trying to study with a man, Sergius Paulus. And as he's trying to make headway in this Bible study, Elamus keeps interrupting. He's trying to subvert the study. He's trying to throw a wrench in and mess things up. And finally, Paul has enough. And he turns to him and he strikes this man blind for a season because he was getting in the way of something that was of eternal importance. Elamus was a legacy of obstruction. He tried to keep another person from obeying the gospel. I don't 
you know, you look at this story and you see how blatant it is and you see how unwise and foolish that is. Who wants to be known as the guy who stopped the person from obeying God? Not me. He was, but now here's the question, can it happen today? I may have shared this with you once, but I had a Bible study at a man's house one time and, and we were um, sitting at his kitchen table and his wife, she, she would get upset. And so she would just like up and walk out and, and, and she'd go upstairs. But apparently she was still listening upstairs because when certain things, you know, were said and, and he found himself in some difficult position, here she comes. You know, she'd run down the steps, you'd hear those steps stomping and she'd come around the corner and yell something at us and then disappear right back upstairs. And she did that about three or four times. All she was doing, she didn't want to engage in study. But she wanted to try to ruin the study and, and throw a wrench in. That's what Elamus did. But it's what we can do too. Not even deliberately, but we can get in the way of people being saved. How does that happen? Well, how about this? Have you known anybody that talked too much? And because they have a reputation, loose lips gossip, or even foul language. Other people look at them and say, now if that's Christianity, you've heard people say that. I worked with a guy one time at a brickyard one summer was trying to make money to go to college. And and, uh, during the summer, there was a guy there that professed to be a Christian. And this welder that I worked with that summer, he said, I have no use for that guy. And it was right after he had walked away from us. He had been with us and he had talked all religious to us. And when he walked away, that, that welder said, I have no use for that guy. And I said, well, how, why not? And he said, have you never been around him here the way he talks? It, it, it's all hypocrisy. You see, you can get in the way of someone else coming to God because of the way you talk. You can get in the way because of the way you act. How many young people might grow up having no relationship to God because their mom and dad and the example that they saw in them? It it can happen. I don't want to get in the way of other people. I don't want to be the person responsible for causing somebody not to to be able to come to Christ. I think it's interesting in Mark chapter 2, there's that story about the, the Jesus is in the house and, man, all these people mobbed around the house, filled the house, and were crowded outside, and that lame man couldn't even be brought to Jesus because of the crowd. Those people weren't intentionally keeping this man from Jesus, but they were nonetheless. And sometimes we may not intentionally think of the consequences of our actions, our speech, our behavior, our attitudes. We may not intentionally be trying to push people away from Jesus, but that might be the effect it has. Be careful with the way you talk. Be careful with your attitudes. Be careful with your actions because they can affect others. You don't want to leave a legacy. You don't want the Lord in the day of judgment to say, you know what, here's your life, and here's 15 people that you stopped dead in their tracks because of the way you lived. You don't want to be one who obstructs people, but rather aids people in coming to know God. 
So tonight, I wanted us to look just at a few people, just to serve as reminders for us. Because the Bible gives both kind of examples. We have those positive ones, and they're fun to read and, and, and uplifting and encouraging. But it also warns us and says there are other examples, 1 Corinthians 10, when people didn't do what they should do. And I want you to pay attention to that as well and see the mistakes they made. And don't make those same mistakes. So that's what we're doing tonight. Don't leave a legacy of foolishness with your life. Be careful that you don't, as Ahithophel, leave a legacy of self-spite. Don't hurt yourself or your family to prove a point. Be humble. Don't hurt yourself like Nabal and leave a legacy of disrespect. Respect God's appointed leaders. Give them the honor that they deserve. And don't be like Elamus and get in the way of other people being saved. Be mindful of those things, and our legacy can be one of glory, as Proverbs 3 says, rather than that of shame. If the final chapter of your life were to be written tonight, and the Lord were to record the the legacy that you left, what would it say? What would it be? Would it be a legacy that we look at and say, that's what we need to be? Or would it be a legacy that says, these are the things you should avoid in life? If it's not what it ought to be, make the change tonight. We serve again a forgiving God. If you need to respond to the invitation tonight to become a child of God and begin living for Him, make that decision And if you're a child of God already but unfaithful and you need to rededicate yourself to be the kind of person that you ought to be, you don't want to leave a legacy of of foolishness. You want to leave a legacy of glory. If you need to respond, won't you come as we stand together and sing?